We'll hear argument now on number 91, 1657. Charlene Leatherman versus Tarrant County Narcotics Intelligence and Coordination Unit. Mr. Gladden. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Uh, in this case, the petitioners challenge uh, what's known as the Fifth Circuit's heightened pleading requirement, which that court applies in civil rights cases brought pursuant to 42 U.S.C. section 1983 uh, with respect to allegations against local governmental entities, wherein uh, plaintiffs allege that the local governmental entity um, has failed to adequately train uh, allegations similar to those presented in City of uh, Canton versus Harris. Uh, it's the petitioner's contention that the heightened pleading requirement uh, violates the system of notice pleading set out in uh, Rule 8A2 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, and alternatively, to the extent that a heightened pleading requirement is permissible under Rule 8, petitioners go further and state that uh, they believe that that violates the Rules Enabling Act, uh, Title 28 U.S.C. Section 2072B. Before going much further, I would like to uh, briefly outline for the court uh, the procedural and factual background which led to this case. Um, the case originally arose out of a search of the Leatherman residence, uh, which occurred in May of 1989. Uh, in that case, uh, governmental officers under the control of the Tarrant County Narcotics Task Force um, secured a search warrant for their premises, um, and upon entering the premises, uh, shot and killed two of their dogs, and uh, after discovering just within moments that there was no narcotics laboratory within the premises, proceeded to lounge about in the front of the yard, um, basically just kind of enhancing and aggravating the anxiety that the family was already experiencing. Uh, Mrs. Leatherman and her son, Travis, were there on the premises at the time the dogs were shot, or at the end of the driveway, some 100 feet away. Uh, they filed a lawsuit in state court uh, pursuant to Section 1983, alleging a violation of the Fourth Amendment with respect to the manner in which the search was conducted by the officers and uh, the shooting of their dogs, which they considered to be an unreasonable seizure of their effect, uh, the dog being the effect in question. Um, I, the petitioner, the Leatherman petitioner's former counsel, uh, filed the case in state court and was unable prior to filing it in state court to get access to any documents to identify the individual officers. Uh, he made numerous attempts to try to secure documents which would more particularly describe what customs they may have and what prior incidents might have occurred similar to this. He was unable to do so. Following the filing of his complaint and our petition in state court, um, the respondents immediately removed the case to federal court uh, and immediately thereafter filed a motion to dismiss on 12B uh, or for summary judgment. Uh, the petitioner, the Leatherman petitioner's former counsel uh, had not been admitted to practice in federal court, and while he was trying to locate other counsel to handle the case, the court uh, initially acted on the motion to dismiss and dismissed the case. Uh, following my becoming involved in the case, um, I moved the court to vacate the dismissal and allow uh, the petitioners to replead their complaint, uh, if possible, to conform to the technical pleading requirements that the court in the Fifth Circuit, or courts in the Fifth Circuit apply, um, specifically the heightened pleading requirement. Um, during the course of time in which we were drafting uh, the amended complaint, uh, our office became aware of another incident also involving the Tarrant County Drug Task Force, uh, wherein the officers had displayed similar uh, lack of supervision with respect to the entry of the residence unannounced, uh, clubbing of an elderly gentleman, 
uh, remaining on the premises some hour and a half to two hours after determining that there was no drugs in the premises or a drug laboratory in the premises. Uh, I came to the conclusion that uh, there is a consistent pattern there, and for that reason, pursuant to 20A, Rule 20A, uh, I added this separate incident together with the Leatherman's lawsuit. Rule 20A of the Rules of Civil Procedure? Yes, Chief Justice. What does that provide? Uh, Chief Justice, if I recollect, it says that you have a common transaction and question uh, element. If you have a pattern of actions uh, by the same identified source and you have common legal questions or common factual questions, the rules permit uh, a joinder uh, of what would otherwise seem to be separate incidences if you have a common factual question or a common legal question. This was a motion to... Uh, well, it, it, was, it was, we just amended the complaint. Uh, I know the district court was uncertain at the time it acted uh, or entered its decision as to what legal authority. The issue had never been raised by the respondents and therefore it had never been briefed. Um, in any event, um, following the amended complaint being filed, uh, the respondent, TCNICU, who I'll just call the Drug Task Force, filed uh, virtually the identical motion to dismiss her for summary judgment. Uh, and at that time, attached some um, unverified uh, police reports and such like that that allowed us to get a little bit more information, but still not enough to, to recognize on an evidentiary basis sufficient facts to perhaps defend a motion for summary judgment. At that time, I filed a motion to stay action on the motion for summary judgment pursuant to Rule 56F uh, because there had not been sufficient discovery uh, from my position to uh, feel comfortable with, with uh, the court acting on it at that time. And that was also briefed uh, in the district court uh, in response to their motion for summary judgment. Um, in response to some discovery, uh, our motion for, for, excuse me, production of documents, uh, the respondent drug task force filed a motion for a protective order. And they claimed, uh, I believe, four different privileges, including executive privilege, while they shouldn't have to disclose any uh, documents in, uh, in connection with the operation of their drug task force. Uh, as a result, uh, the court, the district court entered a protective order and prevented me from getting any other documents other than those voluntarily um, provided by the drug task force. Um, some, and I'd also asked for a hearing on that, and the hearing was denied. Uh, some three weeks later, uh, the court granted their motion to dismiss based on the heightened pleading requirement, uh, but went further and acted on the motion for summary judgment. And uh, however, on appeal, the Fifth Circuit only affirmed on the basis of the heightened pleading requirement. Uh, that pretty much concludes the procedural posture of the case. Um, it's the petitioner's position that there's, there's several reasons why the heightened pleading requirement um, is inconsistent with the notice pleading that this court set out in Connolly versus Gibson. Um, in Connolly versus Gibson, the court said that, fair note, that a plaintiff under Rule 8, and that was yet again a case where the people, ha uh, the respondents had said that uh, you had to have specific allegations to support your claims. And the court, in response to that, said that a, under Rule 8, a, a plaintiff only needs to show fair notice of their claim and the grounds upon which it rests. We believe that in this case, the respondent certainly had fair notice of both the legal and factual basis of the claim with respect to the constitutional allegation, and certainly had an understanding that the, uh, the theory of relief uh, was pursuant to City of Canton versus Harris. Um, they were so able to understand the allegations that they were able to file a motion uh, for summary judgment. Um, however, 
they didn't provide any documentation with respect to what their training was or whether there had been prior instances. Yet again, because the protective order had been entered, I was unable to get such documents. It's our position that not only does Rule 8 and Connolly v. Gibson preclude uh, any understanding of Rule 8 to allow a heightened pleading requirement, but we also believe that Rule 9b, uh, certainly in bred in harmony with Rule 8, would negate the possibility of a heightened pleading requirement. Well, is, is there some indication, or do you believe, I should, you think the district judge would have allowed you the discovery that he previously didn't allow you if he had uh, denied the motion to dismiss? I, I have no way of knowing. Uh, because, that would be just speculation. Uh, you know, you, one of the things you're telling us about is how you couldn't get any information through discovery. And I'm wondering how that is related to, to yes. the heightened pleading requirement. Well, Your Honor, I, th I think the court denied the discovery. It's my impression that he denied the discovery on the basis that the heightened pleading requirement foreclosed the lawsuit proceeding further to discovery, because under a heightened pleading requirement, you wouldn't be allowed discovery unless you could get through a motion to dismiss. Uh, if you so then perhaps your answer to my question should be yes, that had the district court denied the motion to dismiss, it would have been more lenient about allowing discovery. I certainly think so. I think in the absence of a heightened pleading requirement, he would have been more lenient. Uh, most of the case law that he cited in support of denying discovery was connected or intertwined with cases involving the heightened pleading requirement. Um, and back to Rule 9b, uh, another suggestion we have, or an argument we have, is that 9b sets out what kinds of claims uh, there are that requires particularity in pleading complaints. It's limited to fraud and mistake. Nowhere is there any mention of a heightened pleading requirement for civil rights cases or some unidentified other class of cases. And then it goes on to say that allegations involving knowledge, malice, intent, or other condition of mind, which I think in this case, deliberate indifference on the part of the municipal policymaker would certainly be a condition of mind. Rule 9b says that only general allegations are required with respect to pleading. Now, it seems to me that throughout this litigation, both the respondents and the lower courts, not necessarily Judge Goldberg, but uh, they have concluded or they have confused the difference between a rule for summary judgment where evidence has to be pled and presented and a motion to dismiss where you are only required to give fair notice of the claim that you're presenting. I would say again, the respondents in this case had fair notice of what the factual basis of the constitutional allegation was, and they had fair notice, at least to, the, to my ability to plead it, that, that we were challenging uh, the inadequacy of their training, and, and that we believed on information and belief that there were other incidences that would support our claim. Justice Scalia has, uh, on more than one occasion, uh, stated that uh, we should apply the text the rules and not improve upon them. Uh, it seems to me that the lower courts who have imposed a heightened pleading requirement have done so in an effort to uh, improve upon what they consider to be a, a problem with the federal rules in protecting municipalities. Uh, the city of Owen, or Owen versus City of Independence addressed the question of whether municipalities are entitled to qualified immunity, and the court ruled that it wasn't. Um, this heightened pleading requirement originally derived out of the need to protect individual defendants uh, who had a right to assert qualified immunity from broad-ranging discovery. 
I don't think that there's necessarily a problem with limiting broad-ranging discovery in any case under Rule 16. I think a district judge certainly could isolate issues and allow discovery to go forward on that basis. How about a heightened pleading rule where you're dealing with individuals who will claim qualified immunity? Well, I don't think that, first of all, I don't think that issue is presented to the court, but I would take the position in Anderson v. Creighton, Judge Scalia noted that when you do have issues of fact involved, that you can have discovery limited to the fact issue involved go forward, and that would not be inconsistent with qualified immunity. Who wrote the opinion in Anderson? Justice O'Connor? No, Justice Scalia. Justice Scalia. And so you think that Anderson requires what answer to my question? I think Anderson would suggest that qualified immunity or not, there is no need for a heightened pleading requirement or it would be inconsistent to apply a heightened pleading requirement at the same time that you said before that you could allow discovery to go forward where qualified immunity has been raised, only limited to the specific issue. That way we could eliminate this threat or exaggerated threat of over-ranging and over-broad discovery. So the discovery in a case that would be only limited to facts bearing on qualified immunity? In the district courts, well, now for local governmental entities, they don't... No, but when I say a case like that, I meant one where there are individuals involved who can claim... Oh, certainly. I think that would be in the district court's discretion, and certainly he would have discretion to do so, and I wouldn't be here to argue to the contrary. I take it, maybe I'm wrong, is it correct that you're going to go on to say that qualified immunity is not involved here? That's correct, and as I pointed out a moment ago, that issue, Sigurd v. Gilley, I believe, was going to address that, and I recall your concurring opinion. The court didn't reach that issue in Sigurd v. Gilley, and that is not presented in this case, although I recognize that the outcome of this case may have some bearing on a subsequent case that would address that issue. Is the municipality's claim here just characterized as a defense? It's their position that the heightened pleading requirement is a substantive form of immunity. We take the contrary position. We don't believe, we think that Owen v. City of Independence disposed of the issue of whether or not local governmental entities are entitled to qualified immunity. By allowing a cause of action to exist under Section 1983, that disposes of any absolute immunity, and so what we're talking about here is whether or not the limitations on discovery should be addressed through a limitation like a Rule 56F motion, whether or not, or Rule 16 limitation on discovery at the summary judgment stage, not at the initial pleading stage, because Rule 8 expressly was intended to only provide fair notice to defendants in these cases, and unless there's a legitimate claim of not having notice, I don't think it's appropriate to impose this pleading requirement, and in this case, no one filed a motion for more definite statement, because in my view, there was never any question about notice involved. Mr. Gladden, can I ask you, is there, what in the federal rules, if anything, and if your theory is adopted, would prevent a plaintiff routinely, whenever there's been any malfeasance on the part of a police officer, for example, to file a lawsuit claiming that it is a policy of the city? 
you know, the, 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 the policeman shoots a fleeing, uh, a fleeing uh, miscreant who's, who's committed a misdemeanor. I, I think they're separate. And you just file a complaint saying this is a policy of the city, and then, and then it can't be dismissed on the, uh, on the pleadings. So you get to the summary judgment stage, at, but, but you're entitled to discovery for summary judgment. So in other words, you don't really know when you file the suit that you have a proper cause of action, and you're using the suit as a means of, of investigation, which okay, doesn't well, seem to me is proper. Okay, well... It stops it. Yeah, I would respond to that by saying, first of all, we do have Rule 11, which imposes upon plaintiff's counsel an uh, obligation to make a reasonable inquiry into the uh, pre-filing investigation into the facts and law. Yeah, but, but that, that only applies to the facts that are asserted in the, in the, in the complaint, doesn't it? Well, it, it doesn't say that they have to plead the facts, but it says they do have an obligation to make a reasonable investigation into the facts. And I, I assume that means the facts pleaded. Well, not necessarily. You can have, you can have someone fail to do an, a reasonable investigation and have a boilerplate allegation like you have, or you could have someone who had done a reasonable investigation. The, the, the threat of sanctions would... Do you have to find something in that reasonable investigation? Suppose I do a reasonable investigation and I, I cannot I, identify any municipal policy, uh, but I still file the lawsuit. I, 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 complied with the I don't think you would necessarily have to find something, but you'd have to have good reason to believe uh, that discovery would uh, bring forth factual specifics to support your claim. I believe you said in Luan versus Defenders of Wildlife, and, uh, and another case also involving the wine. You don't want to keep attributing this to me. This was the court that said okay. this. You're, okay, okay. Well, I, I don't always speak for the whole court. Okay, there. yes, I understand. Often, often uh, but, but that under 12b-6, yeah. uh, general allegations, unlike a summary judgment motion, under 12b-6, general allegations are presumed to have particular facts supporting them. I think that it would certainly be sanctionable conduct for someone without conducting a reasonable pre-filing investigation to just without doing an investigation, file a boilerplate complaint, and then cause it to go forward to the summary judgment motion stage, I think that someone would have a good argument to file for sanctions. Then again, we would have a very limited amount of, of uh, litigation involved where the sanctions would not be that enormous, and, and you would have to impose sanctions limited to the, the specific event that caused, uh, as the court has said in the Rule 11 cases. What would the, what would the significance under Rule 11 be uh, in a case in which the uh, the plaintiff did all the, the uh, pre-filing uh, investigation he could do and just couldn't find out anything. I, I think that's what you're saying happened in this case. Uh, and, and yet, based on the behavior of the, the police officers, he thinks there's at least a, a, a reasonable possibility that there was a policy of inadequate training and so on. Uh, so he goes ahead and files uh, based upon generalized allegations and then hopes for discovery. Uh, would there be a Rule 11 sanction imposable there? I don't think so. I think if he did everything reasonably, uh, every reasonable effort to discover, in this case, we had naturally an intelligence organization by the very name uh, who were very secretive uh, of the information they had uh, in their files and, and elsewhere. Uh, Rule 9b, of course, does isolate two cases for mistake and fraud, as you'd have to have particular allegations. We think it's different in this case because in fraud cases, you're going to have a, a course of dealing and you're going to have some reliance of the person who's the victim of the fraud. A mistake would be similar. And that's a different category. A case like this, you've got agents of the local governmental entity who are uh, causing damage to the victim. And then because we don't have respondent superior, we've got the supervisors or the policymakers somewhere else. And the victims themselves never have necessarily have direct contact 
with the policymakers. And that's, that's why we have a problem in the absence of responding to superior, which, of course, we don't have. What, what, was the, uh, what was the basis for the knowledge, information, or belief in this case that this was a municipal policy? Um, it had been my experience, I'd mostly a lot of rumors, of course. Uh, we did have these two incidences that are about three and a half months apart. Uh, with officers remaining on the premises for some two hours after determining there was no uh, drugs or contraband on the premises. The shooting of the dogs, uh, which uh, certainly disclosed that it, it, the location of the dogs was such that it indicated that the officers had no reason uh, to be shooting the dogs. That doesn't, that doesn't show a policy. I'm well, uh, of course, there was a statement that was made to, my, to the plaintiff, in that case, Mrs. Leatherman, uh, one of the officers, why'd you shoot my dog? Standard procedure, lady. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, he didn't say, you know, as Justice Goldberg noted uh, in the Court of Appeals, that doesn't indicate under what circumstance the procedure allowed them to shoot mm -hmm. dogs. Mm -hmm. But it did create the inference in my mind, and certainly in her mind, that it was completely unreasonable the manner in which they uh, executed their dogs. Uh, that, that was, that's part, but not all, of the, of the uh, inference that was created in my mind. Is, is it relevant, too, that you had a, uh, I don't know the number, but you had a... a uh a, a multiplicity of officers here. I don't know how many there were, as opposed simply to one officer. If one officer goes in and shoots the dog, I suppose you can't draw much of an inference from that. But if if ten are participating uh, in in what seems to you to be outrageous conduct, that is more probative, isn't it, on the face of it, that there's something more than just individualized caprice at work here. I, I certainly think that would add to it. I know there's a First Circuit case, I forget the name of it, that actually has applied that theory that when you have a number of officers uh, together, like in a Rodney King incident, for instance, uh, there's, to have an isolated act by one officer is, is completely different than to have 15 officers out there uh, hanging around for two hours, drinking beer, shooting people's dogs, uh, using obscene language towards the, uh, the, the plaintiffs. Uh, I think certainly that should be considered as to whether or not there was a reasonable basis to believe that there was a lack of supervision. So in any case, in theory, you could win this case and, and still uh, leave open the question as to whether uh, the, um, uh, an allegation of, of unreasonable conduct uh, against one officer in one incident uh, would be sufficient. Uh, yes, but I, but I think for future plaintiffs that have to file these cases, it's going to be excruciating for them to determine how the court has ruled and what's going to be specific enough or particular enough. And I think that really we ought to just, just interpret the rules as they're written uh, and not stretch the rules to try to incorporate uh, outside of the Rules Enabling Act a particularity and pleading requirement under Section 1983. It seems to me that that's a policy-oriented decision that shouldn't be made by the court. It should be made through the Rules Enabling Act if it's going to be made. Uh, counsel, did you allege in the complaint a, a policy of the city to, uh, or the county to uh, always shoot dogs, or was the allegation really a failure to train? It was, our allegation was uh, more or less loosely patterned on Tennessee versus Garner. I uh, read it as a failure to train It was a failure to train. It was a failure not a municipal train. policy allegation. Uh, okay, I interpreted the failure to train cases, such as City of Canton versus Harris, as being another way of pleading a policy under Section 1983. Uh, that's sort of a strange way to plead a policy, but um, in any event, I wanted to clarify what it was you'd alleged. Uh, okay, I, I can elaborate if you'd like. 
our allegation was is that we, we identified who we knew to be the policymaker. We felt like the policy with respect to the shooting of dogs and under what circumstances it was reasonable to be shooting dogs uh, reflected or evidenced a deliberate indifference by the policymaker, which had resulted or caused, was a substantial factor or cause in the constitutional violation that had been visited upon the plaintiffs by the agents of the governmental entity. Uh, yeah, I read allegations of failure to train and deliberate indifference. Yes, that's correct, as well as an allegation of who the policymaker was mm -hmm. and, and causation mm -hmm. and under color of law. And uh, the court below alternatively uh, ruled for the defendants on a summary judgment motion? The district court the did. The district court did. Yes, the district court did. And the Court of Appeals did not address that? That's correct. And the uh, Court of Appeals did not address the collateral estoppel question? Uh, no, I don't believe that had been raised uh, in the Court of Appeals. Mm -hmm. So those would be open in any event? I believe so, certainly. However, with respect to the collateral estoppel, uh, I would mention that the case, uh, Andert versus Bewley, which is referred to by the respondents, is currently on appeal. Uh, the verdict in that case did not address the constitutional violations, so we are dealing with a situation different than uh, City of Los Angeles versus Heller. Uh, that case involves a situation where the constitutional violation had actually been uh, acted upon or a decision had been rendered by the court. That has not occurred here. Uh, the officers in question, two of the officers of the 15 that were sued, uh, the two officers in Anna versus Bewley, well, first of all, only two of the officers there. Secondly, they, they were let out of the lawsuit on the basis of qualified immunity. Uh, under the There's no issue before this court about collateral estoppel, is there? Well, I believe it was raised in terms of mootness. Uh, some people can construe it as collateral estoppel and some people construe it as mootness. Uh, um, I know City of Los Angeles versus Heller dealt with it in terms of mootness, but I don't think there's anything moot in this case. We're dealing with different defendants and, uh, and several other reasons why I think that's not applicable. If there's no further questions, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Yeah, very well, Mr. Gladden. Mr. Ringel? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The respondents in this case, various municipalities in Tarrant County, ask that the Fifth Circuit's opinion judgment be affirmed, and that this court embrace a heightened pleading requirement in cases arising under Section 1983 against municipalities alleging that officers have not been properly trained or what has been known as failure to train cases. This is especially critical in cases against municipalities before until and unless there is a demonstration of a municipal policy at issue. The case amounts to nothing more than an allegation of vicarious liability for which municipalities are not and have never been liable either at the common law or under 1983. This court has consistently reaffirmed that proposition having stated in Monell that municipalities may not be sued under a theory of respondeat superior. This case is more than just a Monell case. This case is actually governed by City of Canton versus Harris. In a failure to train case, 
The heightened pleading requirement we submit should contain three requirements. First, the plaintiff should be required to allege a clearly established constitutional violation. For without such an allegation, there is indeed no policy. This is not a case like Monell, where all the plaintiff should have to demonstrate is the presence of a policy of the municipality, and that policy caused harm. By definition, in a case like, that, like this, there is no policy unless there is deliberate indifference. It is only when a failure to train arises to the level of deliberate indifference that a policy, which is actionable under 1983, has even been identified. Secondly, the plaintiff should be required to plead sufficient facts to indicate a pattern of similar allegedly unconstitutional acts. More than a single act is clearly necessary for liability, as this court has taught us in Oklahoma City versus Tuttle. Similarly, a failure to train case at bottom is a case alleging that municipal policymakers responsible for the training of police officers have not responded to a concern or a problem of which they have notice. Mr. Ringel, this is a fairly elaborate uh, heightened pleading requirement that, that you're, you're suggesting. And uh, I, I would think that before, perhaps before in our deliberations we got to what the content of such a requirement should be, we would get to uh, wh whether it's authorized at all under the rules in view of the plain statement language in, in Rule 8 and the fact that certainly some sort of expressio unius argument derives from the fraud and mistake special pleading requirement in Rule 9. Uh, I hope fairly soon in your argument you will address that. What I see is a kind of a, a preceding question to the content of a heightened pleading requirement. First, Rule 8 has been represented not in the terms that it's written. I think the petitioners want the court to put the word notice as the only requirement of Rule 8. Rule 8 is more than a requirement of giving factual notice. Rule 8 requires notice of a claim. So even if you have a case where all of the facts that could conceivably be known are laid out, in essence, there is attached to the pleading as an exhibit a videotape which contains every fact upon which the claim is asserted, Rule 8 is still not met unless it states a claim. For example, let's use the pleading in this case as an example. I suggest that the pleading in this case is nothing more than a case of individual responsibility of an officer to which is attached a boilerplate allegation that there is failure to train and deliberate indifference. Nothing well, more did, is alleged. Did the Court of Appeals suggest that the complaint was deficient under Rule 8? The Court of Appeals invoked the heightened pleading requirement, did it not? The, the Court did not address that question. Rule 8... I, I think we take the case on the assumption that it's the heightened pleading requirement that's the defect in the pleading. Yes, that's correct. But the point I'm making is for there to be a claim stated under City of Canton versus Harris, there has to be a policy present, and unless there's some basis to suggest that there is deliberate indifference, it doesn't even state a policy. Deliberate indifference in a City of Canton versus Harris case is part of the definition of a policy, unlike in other cases against municipalities. 
And as Rule 8 is not controlling in a situation, if what that procedural rule permits would violate a substantive right. And I believe the right of a municipality to be free from liability for what is nothing more than a respondeat superior or vicarious liability theory is going to be thwarted. That right will cease to exist if municipalities must defend cases where on the bare allegation of the existence of a policy and the bare allegation of deliberate indifference, the municipality must defend that case. Well, we would really be opening a big door if we bought that argument because every defendant in the country would be here saying that we have a right not to be held liable just on an allegation of negligence. I mean, you, almost every tort action in the country, you could find some reason to say that it should be more specifically pleaded than Rule 8 requires or will be de deprived of a substantive right to wit the right to uh, keep our money uh, until we're found liable by a jury. There is no question that this is not and could not be an across-the-board rule, nor do I suggest that it should be. Well, wh the result... Wh 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 why is your client, which is a municipal corporation, more entitled to a heightened pleading requirement than a railroad, such as we heard this morning, uh, a heightened pleading requirement at a crossing accident. I assure you I won't suggest that the pattern requirement I'm suggesting has anything to do with RICO as an analog either. The fact of the matter is what we have is a case involving intrusion into municipal governmental affairs. That distinguishes this case from others. And we have a case where a defendant enjoys an immunity from liability, which, as this court has reiterated as recently as this morning, also involves an immunity from suit. This is a case in which the same factors... Are you talking about the municipality has immunity from suit? The Puerto Rico Aqueduct case. Uh, no, but, what, but we don't have a state here or a territory. No, that's correct. What is the immunity you're referring to? The immunity is the immunity from respondeat superior liability. Oh. That was an immunity which I think was recognized at the common law. It was clearly an immunity then which was protected in Monroe versus Pape, and it was an immunity which was not affected by this court's decision in Monell. But they're not suing on a respondeat superior theory, are they? Well, that is our problem. The complaint alleges nothing more than that. It is on its so face. Back to whether the complaint states a cause of action now without a heightened pleading requirement. I well, thought I, we took the case to decide whether there's a heightened pleading requirement when someone brings a 1983 action alleging the municipality is liable for its own conduct. That's correct, and this is the perfect example of why that heightened pleading is necessary, because if there isn't a heightened pleading requirement, we get what we have in this case. A case asserting allegedly unconstitutional activities by police officers without the barest determination or factual support that it is pursuant to a policy. Well, how many officers were involved? Well, there were two officers, perhaps, who were involved in the shooting of the dogs. And how and many were sitting in the lawn afterwards? That I do not know. In the other situation, in the Andert case, only one officer is involved. Multiple officers, of course, made the entry, but only one officer was alleged to have actually struck Mr. Andert. Weren't other officers present? 
Certainly other officers were present. How many officers were present in the two combined incidents? I don't know the answer to that, Your Honor. How, how big is this entire police force? Well, they're both small police forces. That is... So maybe we have 75% of the police force involved? No, not in either situation. I would suggest that if, in fact, you had 75% of the police force involved in one instance, that certainly there would be some indication some there... Inference of, some inference of policy. Well, absolutely. If we have... How a, large do you say the police force is? Uh, I don't know how large the police force in these two municipalities are. They're, they are both... One of them is a fairly good-sized municipality, Grapevine. The other, Lake Worth, is not so large. How big are they? Um, I don't know the population of... 100,000 or 5,000? Grapevine is over 100,000. Um, uh, you, uh, <clears throat> you, you claim that something more was necessary to state a cause of action than was stated in the amended complaint? Yes, I do, Your Honor. And you say the amended complaint did not allege a, a, a failure in, in training? It only stated that there was a failure to train. There well, are, it, there's nothing... Well, it, it's, it, as I read it, it says uh, the, uh, the defendant city of Lake Worth failed to formulate and implement an adequate policy to train its officers on the proper manner in which to respond. That is correct. Uh, now you say that, 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 why is that inadequate? Because that is nothing more than a boilerplate assertion of the conclusion. And under Rule 12, certainly the facts that are alleged in a complaint must well, be pleaded. What, what more should, it, what should it have said? I think what more it has to do is first state clearly the constitutional violation, and we have two different circumstances here. Secondly, I think it must clearly allege that the conduct engaged in was conduct engaged in by officers of the same municipality. And there must be some allegation that the first incident could somehow, as a factual basis, put a reasonable policymaker on notice that the first incident should tell you that there's something wrong with the training that should be corrected prior to the first incident. This gets directly to what the problems are that are illustrated in this complaint. What we really have are not two allegations of conduct against so one you, police you, force. You think, uh, you, you think uh, that they should have, uh, should have recounted in the complaint uh, various uh, other acts, similar acts. I, I think uh, there needs and, to... And uh, that, that they would have to prove, perhaps, a trial to, sh to show that there was a uh, deliberate indifference. Precisely. Training. But uh, you think you have, to, uh, you have to state those underlying facts in the complaint? I think that something you, beyond... Yes. Your answer is yes. Yes. My answer is absolutely yes. Well, beyond the policy reasons that you have given us for your yes answer, is there any textual basis in the rules for a yes answer? Because we're, we're, we're considering a question under the rule. There is certainly a textual basis under Rule 11. Rule 11 does not... Well, why don't, may, may, I, may I just start with the contrast between 8 and 9? 8 and 9, in effect, sets up a kind of a dichotomy. Uh, uh, plain statement in, in 8, uh, uh, statement with particularity in cases of fraud and mistake in 9. Uh, the Chief Justice suggested a moment ago that, the, that Rule 9 sets up a kind of uh, exclusio alterius argument. Isn't that correct? Only to an extent. Rule 8 does recognize that notice pleading is sufficient, but Rule 8 has no authority behind it unless that authority can be found in the Rules Enabling Act. 
the Rules Enabling Act specifically provides that a rule of procedure cannot be used to abrogate a substantive right. Now, Rule 9 sets out a policy that in a fraud case, for example, more particularity must be alleged. Well, you're, you're suggesting that on your, on your uh, uh, sort of analysis of this case as involving a kind of municipal immunity, uh, that the, mu- the immunity is being abrogated by the failure to demand the heightened pleading. That is correct. Well, then what do you do about Anderson and Creighton? So that must have been wrongly decided. No, Anderson because Anderson and Creighton assumes that uh, before the, the resolution of the immunity issue, there may be some discovery. Uh, does Anderson and Creighton therefore imply that there is an abrogation of the substantive immunity? No, I don't believe it does at well, all. Well, if, if, if Anderson and Creighton doesn't imply that, why would it be implied by a, uh, a rule of pleading or the recognition of a rule of pleading here that may allow some, th- some discovery of fact, uh, i.e. Uh, uh, leading uh, prior to and leading to summary judgment before you resolve what you refer to as the immunity to any municipal liability beyond respondeat superior? Because I believe that Rule 11 requires more than a plaintiff to just have done an investigation and have found nothing. And having found nothing, that plaintiff is then free to allege a cause of action. That's not what Rule 11 requires. Rule 11 requires that after an investigation, the pleader has a reasonable belief that the claim has a basis in fact. And absent some additional pleading which would establish either a pattern of similar behavior that would put a policymaker on notice, or absent some fact that would show deliberate indifference, or perhaps a fact that would show that the person who was actually responsible for providing and setting up the policy was involved in the illegal act, without something that shows that the municipality is involved as opposed to simply being a case dealing with a wrongful conduct of an individual. Isn't the answer to that Impose Rule 11 sanctions. Uh, don't impose pleading requirements that aren't in the pleading rules. The problem with Rule 11 sanctions typically is they're assessed at the end of, of the case, and if, in fact, there's an immunity or protection for a municipality to be free from both liability and suit in a, qualify, in a, in a uh, context that would otherwise allege only vicarious liability, it seems like that municipality has lost the benefit of that immunity if they must, in fact, defend the suit and, and rely on Rule 11 sanctions down the road after the municipality well, has you, gone you, through all of the defense costs and potentially even you, cost you of settlement. S- you seem to be positing in a rhetorical way a, a full-blown trial. I presume these kinds of issues are going to be generally resolvable, if, if resolvable in your favor they may be, on summary judgment. Well, they could be resolvable on summary judgment if the summary... And this very case was. It's exactly what I was going to say. If the summary judgment is something that is ruled on prior to discovery, the district court relied on two grounds. First was the complaint was dismissed under 12b-6, and summary judgment was granted. granted. Contrary to what the petitioners are suggesting, the petitioners, before the amended complaint was dismissed, had access to all of the information that would have solved the problems they have here. Let me recount, if I, if I may, the problems with the pleading. Her, why did you oppose discovery? It was, you, I think he said you did oppose discovery. It was additional discovery. What was provided to, to the plaintiffs was information that gave a clear indication of which police forces were involved, 
Did you police, give the names of the officers and their rank and all the rest? The police. Did you do that? The, yes. The police reports signed by the officers and identifying the conduct engaged in were provided. And indeed, the agreement that set up the Tarrant County Narcotics Intelligent Coordination Unit was given to them. That is key. We do not have in this case two incidents of actions by the same municipality. Well, you, you claim that, uh, that the complaint should have stated these details. And I thought the complaint, the complaint was dismissed based on the fact that the complaint itself was inadequate. The complaint was dismissed on that grounds yes. and the district court also as an alternative ground for his holding granted summary judgment. Well, uh, what's the, uh, <clears throat> what was the affirmance based on? The affirmance was based on the dismissal under Rule 12b-6. Exactly. And that's, that's the issue we got before us. Yes, it is. Well, if there's any other ground uh, that the judgment could be uh, uh, affirmed on, it's not before us right now. That's where we got a rule on the 12b-6 issue. That is correct, Justice White. Getting back to your Rule 11 point, point it seems to me that Rule 11 doesn't inform Rules 8 and 9. It works the other way around. Rule 11 is a certification that you've complied with Rules 8 and 9. That's all it is. It's a very surprising contention to me that by enacting Rule 11, uh, it was intended to alter or modify Rules 8 and 9. I don't think it did alter Rules 8 or 9. Well, then that's the issue, uh, whether or not Rules 8 or 9 are, are complied with. And, and you refer to the city as having an immunity. Uh, I thought our Owen case indicated that it does not. The city doesn't have an immunity. It just has, non, just has a defense against liability. Even if... The protection of a municipality from a vicarious liability case is judged to be predicated upon a construction of Section 1983. And the fact that Congress, in enacting the Ku Klux Klan Act, did not grant a claim for vicarious liability, the result, I suggest, is the same as whether that protection from suit uh, arises from an actual immunity. The fact of the matter is there is no claim stated because no cause of action was ever granted to sue a municipality for anything other than a case in which its policies were the moving factor behind allegedly unconstitutional actions of its agents. Well, it's true. If there had been respondeat superior, there would be no need to sue the city for uh, negligent training. Well, except there uh, is no... Given the fact that there is no respondeat superior liability, this, the court has said that the city is directly liable for failure of training. So it's not an immunity. It's, it's directly liable for failure to train, but not for negligence in doing so. This is not a situation where a bare allegation of negligence should suffice. A municipality in a failure to train case is liable only if there is a policy amounting to failure to train. And there is a policy only if the failure to train was consciously indifferent. It's not a two-pronged test. It's not an issue of, is there a policy of failure to train? And if that's answered yes, the court then asks the, answers the question, was failing to train deliberately indifferent? The test set out by this court in City of Canton versus Harris is, there isn't even a policy unless the failure to train 
amounts to deliberate indifference of the rights of those with whom the police come into contact. And the result which we are asking this court for, I think, is also counseled by the court's decision in Harlow versus Fitzgerald. Yes, that was a case involving qualified immunity, but I believe the same factors that counseled uh, the court in Harlow and suggesting that these issues of immunity or freedom from suit should be resolved sooner rather than later also apply in a case against a municipality when there is nothing more in the complaint than a, a bare allegation that there is a municipal policy. For example, a municipality is faced with the same expenses of litigation as an individual officer if it must defend a case which it should not be defending because a claim is not stated against it. Indeed, in that case, rather than being free from suit, the municipality is going to be required to direct its resources to the defense of the case or to settlement. Yeah, Mr. Ringel, you, you keep referring to this as, as immunity, uh, immunity from liability. Uh, it's a strange way to put it. The fact is the city is simply not liable unless you prove a certain thing. I, I, guess, I guess you can call that immunity from liability. But it certainly is not, it certainly is not immunity from suit. I think it is a protection from suit. I think no, the court said protection from suit. They can be sued till the cows come home. It's it's a protection against liability. Yes, it, but the point I think that we're looking at is we are going to be in a situation with municipalities that unless there is at least some allegation to indicate the implication of a municipal policy, then what we are really doing are defending the kinds of cases that whether it's because of immunity or because Congress never conferred the right to sue for vicarious liability under 1983. It happens all the time that people have to defend suits which turn out to be baseless. It does happen all the time, but not in the circumstances where there is an impact and intrusion on the affairs of municipal government. So you're saying municipalities are different. I think municipalities indeed, comes down to, indeed right? are different. And, and it, I would suggest... It should have been in Rule 9 then. I mean, you know, special, uh, Rule 9 could have read pleading special matters. A, municipalities. Well, there have been say, a, you know, when there's a municipality, you have to plead everything. It there have been a variety that. of cases, though, where lower courts, and indeed this court seems to have sanctioned the possibility that something more than bare notice pleading is going to be required. Uh, in the Associated General Contractors case versus the Plumbers in a footnote, in that case, the court indicated that in the context of a massive antitrust suit, maybe the court needs to step in early and require something more in the way of factual allegations before well, the parties are required to launch into a case that's going to involve massive expense, massive discovery, and massive disruption. Mr. Ringel, take pay, uh, paragraph 25 of one of these complaints, which appears on page 39 of, of the TAN appendix, and, and reading midway through that, the allegation is that Defendant City of Lake Worth failed to formulate and implement an adequate policy to train its officers on the proper manner in which to respond when confronted by family dogs. Uh, why, why is that deficient? It's deficient. Even under the approach you've been talking about, why is that deficient? It's not deficient, perhaps, to state a claim. It's just not deficient to state a claim against the municipality. These two events... Well, what does it lack? Oh, I think if that is held to state a constitutional violation, 
perhaps that allegation is sufficient to state a claim. It simply isn't sufficient to state a claim against the municipality. It's sufficient to state, perhaps, the claim that Congress granted to a potential plaintiff, and that is a lawsuit against the individual officer. But I thought your complaint was that to go further and hold a municipality, you have to allege a policy. Yes. Here they, they, they allege a policy. Yes. Again, without any basis in fact, it's just a statement. That, that but, kind of policy. If the thing has no basis in fact, that's not a pleading problem. That's either a discovery problem, a summary judgment problem, or a trial problem. Oh, I mean, I, there are all sorts of complaints that comply fully with Rule 8 that have no basis in fact. That's perhaps so as a factual basis, but there is some reason to believe when the claim is asserted that there is a factual basis for it. The problem with these kinds of cases is if this pleading is held to be appropriate and satisfactory under Rule 12, every case that involves the potential qualified immunity of an officer, every case of allegedly wrongful or unconstitutional activities by a lower-level officer of a municipality will state a claim under City of Harris, City of Canton versus Harris. And that is, I would submit, an anomalous result that these kinds of pleadings could state a cause of action under City of Canton versus Harris, even though we are counseled by that opinion that a policy can't even be established unless there can be some demonstration of deliberate indifference. Deliberate indifference seems to me to be cast in the notion of disregard. Well, they also allege deliberate indifference. I'm sorry, Your Honor. The amended complaint also alleges deliberate indifference. Again, without basis. Everything that's alleged with respect to the municipal policy is simply cut and pasted from this Court's opinion in City of Canton versus Harris. There's no basis for it. The only allegations of conduct, there is nothing in the pleading. Wouldn't you also agree these facts are a little bit unusual? I think the facts are highly unusual. But I don't think the facts are sufficient to put a policymaker on notice. You don't give rise to any suggestion that anybody might have trained these officers a little bit better? No, you don't. They argue it's so obvious that there was a failure to train that you don't need anything more than this. That's one of their allegations. That is an allegation. I don't believe that's the situation here. It's fairly routine to go out shooting dogs and hanging around afterwards, talking in the lawn and all that. That does seem to be a rather obvious lack of training if your officers behave in that manner. Well, standing around and doing the things they're alleged to do may indeed be outrageous, perhaps even wrongful behavior. Well, and also somewhat indicative of not well-disciplined professional officers. That's the notion that I get from the complaint. Now, maybe the facts aren't true, of course. I can't. That indeed could be something that is assumed. Again, that can be assumed from any allegation of a wrong by an officer. You say any allegation, but these are rather unusual facts. This is not a typical complaint at all. I don't think it is. I haven't seen one quite like this before. The facts are bizarre, but I'm not sure that the facts are egregious. As soon as you say they're bizarre, they're not typical. They are not typical. There is no question about that. But what we have in one instance is the shooting of dogs. We don't know what the circumstances are. The 
Police reports, which are attached to the affidavits that were filed in the district court, indicate that in both instances the officers were attacked by the dogs. Now, if that is the fact, and indeed this was a, a German Shepherd dog and a Doberman, which were unleashed, uncaged, I'm not sure that that is, is outrageous conduct. As far as the fact that the officers may have been, let me assume they were, standing around the, the premises after the search, that again may be inappropriate conduct, whether it's illegal, I question. Whether Sitting around in lawn chairs, in lawn chairs, drinking beer, as, as, as I got it. That is, that is indeed the allegation. And I, I think that sometimes a conduct, for example, the shooting of a fleeing felon, can be so outrageous, it's the kind of outrageous conduct that counsels there must be a failure of training. Now, if we really have a lot of police officers sitting around in lawn, lawn chairs drinking beer, I suggest that doesn't counsel that uh, a failure of training. I think there the outrageous conduct is the outrageous conduct but of the officer. But if they had just said, uh, well, and last week and the week before they did the same thing or something very similar, you, you wouldn't be here, I suppose. Absolutely not. If there had been some indication to let the policymaker know, the person who is responsible for establishing the policy. Thank you, Mr. Ringel. Your time has expired. Mr. Gladden, uh, you have four minutes remaining. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Um, I think we've pretty much covered everything there is to cover. If the court has no further questions, uh, I'm prepared to go ahead and uh, stop at this point. Please do so. The case is submitted. Thank you. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.